You're listening to the Formation Church Podcast. Formation exists to be a safe place for hurting people to find healing relationship with Jesus. For more information about the ministry of Formation in Salt Lake City, Utah, visit our website at formationslc.com. I do, I want to spend the next two weeks, Lord willing, talking about what I really do sense God is inviting us to as a community in this new year. And you know, over the last year, if you've been with us, you know, we've talked so much about invitations from God. And, and one of the reasons for that is that one of the biggest shifts in my own spirituality over the past couple of years has been learning this, that in every season situation and circumstance, there is something to which God's Spirit is inviting me. It doesn't matter what it is. In every season, situation, and circumstance, there is something to which God's Spirit is inviting me. And so, for instance, in times of confusion, God is inviting me to trust Him and to seek Him by faith for wisdom sort through that confusion. In times of trial, the Spirit of God's always inviting us to endure. In times of loss, He's inviting us to grieve with Him. In seasons of weariness, which we've all had or are having even right now, we're being invited in those seasons of weariness to something, to rest and, and according to Isaiah, to wait on the strength of God that He promises will come as we wait and trust in Him. In seasons of blessing, we are invited to celebrate And in all things, so this will be helpful, just regardless of where you are in life, I can guarantee you there's at least three things that God's inviting you to do, to rejoice, to pray, and to worship. Those three things are consistent. No matter what's going on in our lives, we're always being invited to that. In every season, in every situation, in every circumstance, there is something to which God's Spirit is inviting me and inviting us. And so the question in front of us today is to what is God inviting us in this new season? And I think it's really important for us to sit with that for a few minutes and to really pray over it because we enter this year in such a very different place from where we started last year, specifically as a community. We have our own home, for instance. We're here in the midst of that. We are less and less living under the daily cloud of COVID. I know COVID is very much a reality in our lives still, but it doesn't have the same oppressive force us to be home and away from each other that it that it once did, so that's lifting more and more. Some of the energy and hope seems to be returning to our community. We're financially, just to get real practical, so much stronger than we were a year ago. Um, for two, two things, bring that to mind for me. One is, you know, because we're here, we don't long, no longer have to pay to rent to be somewhere else on Sunday, which was sizable. And even though, and I don't think anybody knows this yet, but even though we set a $20,000 goal for Above and Beyond, we ended Above and Beyond over $52,000 at the end of last year. It's amazing. So obviously, we're in a financially stronger place than we were a year ago. And so the reality is, there's an almost endless number of places and almost an endless number of things that we could focus our efforts and attention on, which means we really have to sit with and to ask God what is on his heart for us. And so I started asking him about that early last month. And the more that I prayed about it, I just noticed he kept drawing my attention to the same word over and over and over again. And I've never really been one of those people that's like, here's my word for the year. 
but apparently I am this year, okay? Because God, I'm not making fun of you. If you're a word, if you have a word, Didi, stop. Uh, <clears throat> I, I wasn't mean. I just that's I just never really done that. I've just tended to fumble my way through year after year. So, but over and over again, God's brought the same word into my heart and into my mind through scripture and through times of silence, and it's the word devotion. And the English word devotion is defined as the fact or state of being passionately dedicated and loyal to something or someone. And in addition to the English word, it's also a very important biblical word and practice. And so it's to that end that I really want to turn our attention for the next two weeks. And so here's what I want to do. For the next two weeks, it's really going to be one sermon in two parts. And so part one this morning, I want to talk about why devotion matters. And then next week, we'll shift gears and we'll get more specific on what it actually could look like for us in the new year. And so if you have a Bible or a Bible app that you like to read on, do me a favor and open up to Acts chapter 2, specifically verse 42. That's going to be the anchoring verse for the next two weeks. Acts 2, 42. In addition to that, if you also want to hold a place in Luke chapter 14, we're going to jump there in just a few minutes as well. So Acts chapter 2 and Luke 14. This is fun, Matt, because I'm seeing uh, the text messages that pop up on your iPad right now from Dee. So... I'm going to read along. Be careful. If you're like, that point sucked or didn't make any stuff, that'll be, got it. All right, I'll, okay. <clears throat> we, we had, there's nowhere to hide in this space. Like, this is just real intimate all the time. Okay, good. That's good. Uh, we're going to call the next two weeks the devoted disciple, because that's really what we're after. And so let me just preface what we're going to jump into in Luke 2 with some context, because there really are a couple of key details that I think are really important to help us get our hearts around this. So the first thing is, I want you to know on the front end, this is a descriptive text. Some of you heard me talk about this before. It's a descriptive text. That means it describes something that took place in the early church. One of the most basic Bible reading principles that we need to understand is we need to read through a lens where we're asking the question, is what I'm reading descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive describes what happened and we contrast that with a prescriptive text where something is commanded directly. Now, that being said, just because something is descriptive does not mean that it should be dismissed as though it holds no value for us. And so the question that we bring to this, even though this is a description of what the early church did, we bring this question that says, okay, well, how could this benefit us today? So this, that's the first thing. It's a descriptive text. Here's the second thing. I want you to understand the timing of when this one verse takes place, and the timing takes place around these events are being are described, what happened directly after Peter's Pentecost sermon. So if you're not familiar with New Testament history, let me just summarize it for you real quick, okay? So Jesus Christ, God the Son, was born to the Virgin Mary. He lived roughly 30 years in obscurity, and then he spent just three years as an itinerant teacher, inviting people to a new way of life, and healing the sick, and liberating the spiritually oppressed. And that perfect life that he lived ultimately led to him laying down his life and being crucified for the sin of the world and then his resurrection for our healing. And he appeared to over, after his resurrection, 500 eyewitnesses and then commissioned his followers to go into the world and to make disciples. Then he left them in the physical sense and returned to heaven, but he promised them that his Holy Spirit would come. And so his early disciples, it was a group just about this size, they gathered all together and they did two things. They prayed 
and they waited. Jesus had promised his spirit was going to come. So they prayed, and they waited, and they prayed, and they waited. And then Jesus did pour out his spirit, and something amazing happened. Because in a moment, this once cowardly and confused bunch of misfits were emboldened and started to tell everyone who would listen the good news of all that Jesus had done. And the beginning of Acts chapter 2, everything that leads up to where we're going to read the next two weeks, is Peter standing up for the first time and doing this. And in that moment, 3,000 people turned from sin and chose to follow Jesus. And so the question is, how do 3,000 people begin to order their lives around Jesus? They, they had like so, so few of the structures that we might have in place today, and there's some upside to that, obviously. But how did they begin to order their lives around Jesus? And Acts 2.42 paints a picture of what happened as a result of this decision that they had made. So follow along with me. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says this. They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They devoted themselves, the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so this week, we're going to spend two weeks with this verse, and this week I really just want to sit with those first three words, believe it or not. Just want to look at this opening phrase, they devoted themselves. Now that three-word phrase actually translates just one Greek word. And the one Greek word means to, to persevere devotedly or to persist obstinately. Like I'm going to keep doing this thing and I'm not going to quit, I'm not going to give up. And this Greek word is a present active verb. And that's important for more than just grammar nerds, okay? Because understanding the, this, the, the nature of this word helps us understand and grasp the sense of it. And so this is a verb tense that is used by a writer to portray an action that is in process or a state of being with no assessment of the action's completion. So what that means is it implies ongoing action. These were not... It's not, not like a one-time event. So if I were to say to you as a pastor, I study and teach the Bible, those are present active verbs. I don't just do that once. My life and my vocation are committed to that indefinitely. Make sense? So that's a present active verb. And these four things that Luke then goes on to at the end of this verse that, that we'll look at next week, they weren't flash-in-a-pan events. These became their way of life. They were devoted to these four things together. Now, here's why I think this one phrase, just these little three, three little words, warrants an entire teaching this morning. Their devotion, what's being described here, their devotion positioned them for everything that they experienced. So if you keep reading the book of Acts, then you're going to find that Luke provides detailed documentation of how Jesus used the early church to absolutely change the world. And so as we continue on through Acts, we read these stories of healing, we read stories of deliverance, we read stories of transformation on a scale of which is hard for us to even conceive of. And their devotion to following the way of Jesus together served as the conduit through which all of that came. And so here's the mantra for the next three weeks I really, really want us to lean into together. It's just three simple words. Ready? Discipleship demands devotion. Discipleship demands devotion. 
Now, that might sound kind of a little bit heavy-handed, and so I want to unpack that just a little bit, because whether or not it sounds heavy-handed, it's true. See, to be what we call a Christian means so much more than praying a prayer for forgiveness and then returning to a familiar way of life. But unfortunately, that's what it's become. But it's more than that. It's, even, it's more than ascribing to a specific set of doctrinal convictions or moral laws, though that might be part of our faith. It's about so much more than that. To be a Christian in the biblical rather than just the cultural sense means to be a disciple of Jesus. And this might seem kind of elementary to some of us, but I don't think that we ever move past this. To be a follower of Jesus means to be a disciple. That, to be a disciple is to be a learner or a student. And so it means learning, empowered by grace, to bend one's entire way of life to the ways that Jesus calls. And so when Jesus opens his arms to the world, and when he opens his arms to us and he says, come one and come all just as you are and follow me, he's inviting us to become disciples. And that demands devotion from us. Now, in hearing that, I would not be surprised if there's something inside some of us that pushes back a little bit, and it's like, whoa, 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 let's talk about grace. I thought that we were saved by the free gift of grace, and I would say, frickin' duh. We are, 100%, and the notion that grace provides salvation for us, but demands nothing from us, is a demonic lie that many, many, many in our culture have believed. And this is necessary for us to really consider because so much of what is heralded as Christian life in our culture is nothing more than what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor, theologian, and psychiatrist, called cheap grace. Now, cheap grace is little more than an idea that comforts us, but it changes nothing. Cheap grace provides us permission to be our own gods rather than to surrender our lives to Jesus as God. Cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer wrote, is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. And we need to understand this appropriately because this isn't legalism. This is the message of Jesus. And so if you go from Go left in your Bible, if you have a Bible in front of you, and turn to, to Luke 14, because I want to show you where Jesus echoes the very thing we're talking about here. In Luke 14, Jesus is at this point in his ministry where his teaching and his miracles have, have gathered these tremendous crowds. But it's important to note, these crowds are not disciples. They were consumers of spiritual goods. They were primarily there for the show. And that makes sense, because it was quite a show. Jesus is doing incredible acts. He's providing compelling teaching to them. And just in case we think that Jesus was content to gather spiritual consumers, I want you to listen to what he says in verse 25. He says this. Now, it starts saying, Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them. So he sees this crowd of Christian consumers, or consumers of spiritual goods, and he says, this is a quick way to thin a crowd, okay? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever 
does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. Now, for the sake of clarity, it is so, so, so important that we understand that one of Jesus' most common oratory tools in his teaching was the use of hyperbole. Now, hyperbole is an intentional exaggeration to make an, an important point. So, for instance, if I were to come to you and be like, I am starving, you'd be like, mm, you don't look starving. You don't look like you're missing lots of meals in your life, okay? But it's hyperbole. The point of that, the, the, I feel like the ongoing chuckle about that is a bit much, okay? <laughs> it's, it's encouraging at first, then it becomes hurtful real, real fast. So... But that's hyperbole. The, the point is just, I'm very hungry, right? That's hyperbole. And so Jesus is not saying that we should literally hate our families. There are other places where we're clearly called to love and to serve our families. He's not calling us to literally hate our own lives. He isn't saying that we literally should craft wooden crosses and carry them through the day in order to be uh, Christians, although occasionally I see someone doing that and it makes me uncomfortable. Um... You've never seen that? Someone just walking around dragging. You usually see it by the ocean for some reason. I feel like there's some weed involved in the whole thing, but there's just a cross being carried. I've seen that. That's not what we're being called to. Though if that's you, you know, choose a word for the year and carry a cross and let that be you. <laughs> but listen, what Jesus is saying is that discipleship demands devotion from us. You cannot be a mere spiritual consumer and a true disciple. And this is the very reason why Jesus goes on to use two parables to invite these people to consider the cost that is demanded of truly being a disciple. And so the, these are what are called interrogative parables that he's going to use here. And they're meant to make listeners look at something honestly in their lives. And they all tend to work the same way. They set up a hypothetical situation and they force the listener to answer a question and then to transfer that answer to another arena in their own lives. And so Jesus is going to use a parable here, one about building and then one about war. Look at verse 28. It says, For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost, if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and wasn't able to finish. Or what king? Going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. So, he sets up these questions, and the answer to both of them is pretty obvious, and that's the point. Jesus is saying that nobody with even a modicum of wisdom and maturity would set out to build anything without figuring out if they had the funds to complete it. And in the same way, no wise king would lead their people to war without first considering if they actually had the numbers to succeed. And so Jesus' point is, is in the same way, a person must count the cost that discipleship demands. And this is, this is an important check for me, because I, I don't know about you, but I, I can be a little impulsive. And because of my, like my impulsivity, it has pros and cons. The good thing about it is that the gap between a decision that I make and the action that I need to take 
in order to like fulfill the decision is real small for me. I'm like real, real quick on that. So for instance, on the day, on literally the day I became aware, I need to get some therapy. I got to start working on some stuff. I had a therapist and an appointment that night. And I've met many people that made a decision like, I need to get some help, and then they wait, and they wait, and they wait, and they delay, and they delay, and they delay. And for whatever reason, I'm just not wired that way. But my wife would disagree with that. There are certain things I could probably move a little faster on for her. But in general, I tend to make a decision, and then I take action. But I can also be guilty of what some people would call ready, fire, aim, which is um, I can take impulsive action, without considering the long-term demand of that decision. And then you end up having to like walk it back and it's embarrassing and it's hard. And, and so that's what Jesus, as it pertains to discipleship, is trying to head off here. And I want you to compare Jesus' sober-minded caution with so many of the gospel messages that are being heralded today. I, I, would, I would argue that the most prevalent gospel invitations today are high on what I would call emotional urgency and very low on rational consideration, meaning they push for quick decision. So there's this big emotional buildup, usually involving some amount of fear or sadness in your life or whatever, and then this line is drawn in the sand, and the invitation that's extended is if you cross this line and you come to Jesus, all of this goes away. And it works. Like, that kind of emotion compels people to action. I just think it's very interesting that that's not what Jesus does. Jesus does not emotionally manipulate us. In fact, he really wants us to understand that to which he's inviting us. He wants us to truly understand that while following him does promise a flourishing life, that discipleship demands devotion from us. And so I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but for me, this new year is a bit of a, a mixed bag for me emotionally. And, and so on the one hand, the older I get, and maybe some of you can relate to this, I have a little bit of like trepidation, trepidation going into this year. And, and the reason for that is, is I reflect on the difficulty that marked so much of last year. I had, I had a relational things that went on. I had... My mom had cancer, which she is cancer-free as of right now, so praise God for that. <clears throat> and, but it made for a real hard year last year, and it was a hard ministry year. And so there was just so much going on that was so, so difficult. And so as I reflect on that, I kind of look at this new year and I go, I wonder what difficulty is going to be in this year. And I'm not pumped about repeating all that. But then on the other hand, I, I have this deep longing, like many of you, for transformation. And I have this hope that this year is going to mean me growing and becoming different than I was last year. And my guess is, inside that kind of complicated emotional space is where many of us find ourselves as we start this new year. And so as we close, there's two pieces of good news that I want to leave you with on this first Sunday for us of this year. And the first one is that God was with us in every difficulty last year, and he will remain faithfully present with us in whatever difficulty this year holds as well. Amen? There was not one second you were alone last year, no matter how hard, and there won't be one second this year. So it doesn't mean that this year won't have difficulty in it, 
But we need not live with this deep fear as though we're going to walk through that difficulty alone because he is with us in it. But the second thing that I really want us to understand is that being a disciple of Jesus does promise change. And I wonder if we have fully latched on to that. That what Jesus promises us is a transformed life. Healing is promised to us. And so that can and should be our expectation. It's right that we would not only long for it, but we would expect that Jesus is going to change us. But here is the big problem for us. In our culture, we want a discipleship that demands nothing, and then we complain when it changes nothing. And that doesn't work. We want the ease of being casual Christians, where we get to follow Jesus and live in community at our own convenience. And when that predictably changes nothing in us, we look at Jesus and we think, man, you know what? He promises change but delivers more of the same. And I would say that's like blaming a gym that you never attend for not producing health benefits in your life. It's not your gym's fault. You didn't devote yourself to it. And discipleship and the transformation it promises, it demands devotion from us. We'll get into the practicality of that next week, but here at the beginning of this year, I think it's important for us to just pause and to consider that for a moment. That we are invited to a devoted life with Jesus together. Now, I have seen... So many Christians and so many pastors on the internet these past few weeks saying things like, I declare this is going to be the greatest year of your life. Here's what I would say to that. That is um, emotional manipulation at best and maybe witchcraft at worst. Because it's like casting a spell. And so (laughs) I'm not going to sit up here and declare that this is going to be the greatest year of your life. Because I don't know and you don't know. But what I can promise you is that this can absolutely be the deepest year of your life with Jesus and one another to date. It absolutely can. This year can be a year of deep inner healing, of renewed hope, and profound transformation for you. And Jesus longs to accomplish all of that in all of us this year. And so he stands here right now with us, arms open wide to us, promising all of this to us through one simple invitation. Devote yourself to me. And so my prayer for this year is that we will embrace this invitation from Jesus together and that we will learn to live more deeply devoted to Jesus and to one another in 2023. So let's pray to that end. Jesus, we... um, We thank you that you do promise us the reality of healing and change and transformation. You promise to put right the things that have gone wrong, both in us and in our world. And we acknowledge that that healing and transformation is often slow. But Lord, we also acknowledge that It does come with a cost. That we can't neglect you. That we can't neglect one another. 
that we can't live selfish lives that are completely bent around our own preferences and our own comfort and our own ease and expect to experience what it is that you have held out to us because that's not discipleship. You've called us to devote ourselves to you and to devote ourselves to one another. And so, Lord, as we spend some time with this over the next couple of weeks, I just pray that you would give each of us clarity regarding specifically how you are inviting us to that. In what way are you inviting us to devote ourselves to you more deeply? Holy Spirit, we thank you that we are not alone, that you are our helper. So, Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom as we wrestle through these things and sit with these things and pay attention what's coming up for us in the midst of it. Pray this in Jesus' name.